Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. Well, a pleasant good evening to everybody across the world, and welcome to the Water Zone. I'm Rob Starr, along with Mr. Chris Davies, and we are the host of the Water Zone Show. Hope everybody's having a good day. Mr. Davies, who I call Mr. because I respect him a lot, how are you doing today? Uh, right back at you, Mr. Starr. Uh, we're doing all right out here on the left coast, named for its uh, geographical position and its political bent. We uh. are... We're doing just great. Looks like we're going to dry out, but yet another, this will be the 13th atmospheric river is due in California next week, next Tuesday and Wednesday. Maybe Miss Austin in a few minutes will have a comment. Oh, I just wanted to clarify stuff for our audience. I know you said uh, uh, dry out. Is that the state or you? That That is not me personally. I'm not on a quest to dry out myself from whatever you think I'm wet from. Uh, <laughs> but uh yeah it is uh there's there's been signs that there's a big yellow ball in the sky we have yet to identify it but we're looking forward to it uh maybe it's a yellow balloon could could be one of those things from china right i thought i had that thought i saw one myself as i was driving to work but it was just bird poop on my windshield well <laughs> <laughs> i heard you've had a torrential rain the last couple of days uh, yeah, it was crazy, man. I mean, it was coming down at an inch an hour at a particular, uh, uh, you know, few times, not not consistently, but a few times, washout kind of stuff where the freeway was down to five miles per hour because you couldn't drive any faster. There was literally two, three inches of standing water everywhere. Unbelievable. Well, let's bring on our wonderful Maven Notebook person, and she is the purveyor of Maven's Notebook and the one who knows all about what's going on in water. Maybe she can give us some insights to some things. I, I did attend a, an event the other day, and uh, maybe she was listening in on that. But uh, let's welcome Miss Chris Austin. Chris, welcome. Hey, how you doing, everyone? Um, good. So um, mm-hmm. my wisdom tells me that... Um, I can tell you that we've gotten a, a lot, a lot of rain, and we have a really, really big snowpack. Uh, so there's my professional opinion. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, so, it, it so, certainly has so, been crazy. Well, so so the, the key words in California is drought or floods, and sometimes both in the same year, as you see. Uh, this is. This is uh, this is not unusual for California. Uh, what is kind of unusual is that the droughts are getting hotter and drier, and when the wet years come, oh boy, are they wet! And the last year we had that was similar to this was I think it's 2017, which was uh, the last record-breaking year for precipitation. And that came on the heels of the very deep drought of 2014-2015. We were almost in a similar position, staring down uh, very low reservoirs in low storage all over and people starting to wring their hands, oh, what will we do? And then here comes this uh, massive uh, season. That was also the season, I believe, that the... uh, Billway at Oroville became damaged uh, because there was so much rain. So 
you know, it it's uh, it seems to be a pattern uh, that we're having uh, more and more. But but all throughout history and even in the paleo records, um, it's been like this before. You know, yeah, this deep drought. Yeah, this isn't anything new for us, right? I mean, it's like it's like the course of things and the way and the way it should go. So when when the news and all that kind of stuff sensationalize it, I guess I look at that as right here in in time as we are today and right here in place depending on you know geographical and physically where where you're standing but the the potential for these kind of dry dry uh dry period droughts and wet periods has been uh found out researched through the uh, historical record so really nothing new right in general, nothing new. I mean, the the climate is changing, and we have all sorts of data to bear that out. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean every single thing that might seem unusual is the result of climate change. Uh, you know, it's not it's not quite linear as that. I mean, we have been. Uh, if if I could show our listeners. Uh, the precipitation totals for the last 100 years uh, where blue lines would show you, you know, surplus uh, years and brown would show you drought years, you would easily see that there have been far more many drought years since the year 2000 than uh, in the preceding 100 years. I mean, in terms of how, how many drought years there are close together. I mean, there certainly there were drought years, and there were deep droughts, I think, uh, 1926 uh, or that, around that time, also the 76-77 drought. But the droughts in 2000 are coming uh, many more drought years, uh, you know, and, and just a few wet ones. Um, the big difference that we're having with the drought and it makes with the droughts that we been having especially these last three years and it is making a huge difference and that is that they the temperatures have been much hotter um you know however this year <laughs> it's nice and cool and lots of rain and lots of precipitation it looks like uh we we might actually end the year with full reservoirs uh which is uh just rather amazing as no one would have thought that possible. And finally, Shasta is starting to rise. Uh, they don't think it's going to rise to the point that they'll need to spill, but finally it seems to be picking up some uh, precipitation. So uh, there's certainly going to be uh, lots of water this year in California, and I think we will see some healthy allocations uh, from the state water project that will probably be out, um, you know, soon. Could it could even be this week? They might announce an increase in the state water project allocation. So, um, you know, we'll see. Reservoir levels being what they are in California doesn't tell the whole story because you juxtaposition that against what is happening in the Colorado River Basin. Um, maybe not such a rosy story, right? Yeah, it's very it's very much different in the Colorado River Basin. Uh, that you know, they've been talking about drought like for 20 years now, literally 20 year drought that they're having. And the big difference between the Colorado system and California state system is that 
those two reservoirs, Lake Mead and Lake Powell, are massive. I mean, I don't know off the top of my head how many uh, acre-feet they store, but I believe it would be 20 million or maybe more each one. And uh, for com- comparison, Shasta's 4 million acre-feet and Oroville is 3.5 million acre-feet. So, you know, it, it, Lord help us, is should the Colorado Basin get enough precipitation to fill one of those reservoirs in one year? Uh, that would truly be biblical, <laughs> you yeah. know, if that happened. Uh, but it, it's uh, it's uh, not it's not going. I mean, things are going to improve, and they, you know, there is good snowpack in the Colorado River Basin, which means that there's going to be some uh, good inflows into Lake. Powell and Lake Mead this year, that takes the pressure off the need for drastic cuts this year. Uh, but all the parties know it's they're just getting a small reprieve. Uh, the things will continue. But the big difference is those are massive, massive reservoirs. And here in California, by com- comparison, our two largest reservoirs are just tiny in comparison. Yeah, it says a lot for the production of hydroelectric power as well. Three, four months ago, you and I and Rob were talking about how, how tough it was right, right before we started all these atmospheric rivers in November and December last year. Before that, we were talking about how low the, uh, the reservoirs were on the Colorado River system and how they had to shut down hydroelectric power production. Yeah, this is, that's a big concern because, uh, you know, hydroelectric power, especially off the Colorado River, uh, powers a lot of the Southwest. And, you know, to have people flip on their air conditioners, you need a lot of, you need a lot of uh, power for that. Also, uh, power from uh, Hoover Dam uh, powers part of the Colorado River aqueduct. So when you don't have those power sources, it's, it's a real problem, uh, you know. And that's kind of the hard part, I think, with with drought, is that it takes the reservoirs down, and that does impact hydropower production. So there can sometimes cause uh, um, a, a difficult time for the power grid to lose those sources. It's it's kind of a rough way to go, but you know. We've seen in the last thousands of years, or at least when I shouldn't say that far back, but when when we started uh, measuring temperature, uh, there's swings, there's various swings and, and things that that can change that. Uh, did you have a chance to uh, to listen or participate in the framework for making conservation a California way of life? They had a, uh, a meeting yesterday. I didn't know if you uh, attended or, or listened to that. Actually, I I will confess I did not. Uh, <laughs> I did. It was I did. It was very interesting. Um, they the Department of Water Resources put some information together, but the collectives from the water agencies were doing their own work, so they didn't always come out with the same numbers. And then one of the one of the biggest concerns is what they call the variances. And then they had Fiona Sanchez, I think you know from Irvine Ranch Water, she came on, and it was supposed to be an hour and a half meeting, but the lesson was five hours. And um, one of the concerns she said is is, is, is where, what, what water agencies have to get to uh, to satisfy this potential 
regulation. And she said they spent over $300 million, and they can't get to the number of that that this proposal is asking for, unless somebody's going to fund tons of money. I mean, big dollars to the project. And she was just one of one of them. She put some slides up, which I'm going to get next week, because um, that wasn't part of the agenda package that I got. And it, it seems like there's going to be a lot of disagreements from water agencies about how they're coming to these numbers. And then what about the variances that nobody's really identifying all that could be? And uh, I don't know if it's going to pass or what what's going to happen with this thing. And it was it was really interesting. Maybe when you get a chance to catch up on that, we can we can talk a little bit more about that. But I was surprised that right off the bat on the questions, uh, she she jumped right up and started started out the numbers, and saying, "Hey, look, they spent all this money and they've been doing." rebates and doing all kinds of cutbacks and everything else, but they can't do any more <laughs> unless there's a big, big change. In, and and, that, and if there was, it would take 12 years for them to, to meet that challenge. Well, so. you know, that's, that's kind of the hard part of, of uh, this plan is that, you know, the water agencies are now going to have to uh, figure out how to get their, their uh, customers to conserve. Uh, to cut yeah. back on their water use, and they they don't really have fines or penalties that they can assess to those water users. Yet, you know, they would could potentially be fined by for the state water board, uh, you know, for not accomplishing their goal. So, yeah, yeah I can see why that would make uh, people nervous. I imagine when they pass similar restrictions for the power companies or similar objectives for the power companies that uh, they probably have a lot of the same concerns. Um, And I don't know how successful, uh, you know, Southern California Edison was at at, uh, getting people to to conserve. They they sent all sorts of people out to our house and, well, my husband damn near run them off the property. (laughs) (laughs) He says... He, he was just very suspicious of anybody coming to talk to us about solar panels, but he would not hear any of it. So I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do. Um, I it, it's really hard for me to say. I think we do need to be uh, careful with our water use, and I do think that we all need to work at becoming more efficient with it. Um, but we'll we'll have to we'll have to see how this works. Yeah, that's a workshop. They're they're getting ready to start what they call the rulemaking process to actually right. write the regulation that they will all be held to. Uh, so we'll we'll see how it how it goes as they keep working it out. Uh, they haven't started that yet. Once they start that, then there's a whole formal uh, period where like. They release something, and then there's 15 days to respond to that. Then they uh, ad- adapt it, update it, release it again, you know, another 15 days, and they kind of keep going back and forth until they get to the point where they figure the language is done. Uh, so we'll we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I know they're they're planning from January 1st of 2025. They want to have the residential indoor uh, gallons per capita to 47 gallons a day, and then from 230, 2030 on, it's down to 42. And that's for indoor. 
Yeah. So there's going to be a lot more technology that has to be designed uh, to try to meet that challenge. And then, and then for the outdoor products, it's going to be the same thing, even harder. So yeah, and I mean, I do think there is some slack in the system that can be picked up. Um, you know, it's it's uh, continuing rebates for more efficient appliances, uh, swapping out toilets for low water toilets. Um, yeah. um, a lot of people, you know, in uh, middle class and in, in other places that actually have money and take advantage of this probably have, but there certainly are, um, from my understanding, a lot of uh, disadvantaged communities that, you know, if they just came in and they could just swap out the toilets for free, that it, they could probably save a lot of money. Um, apartment buildings, too, you know, a lot of apartment buildings apparently haven't been changed out. And Really, the, the there's a lot of wasted water in an old four or five gallon flush toilet. You know, now now they're down to one and a half to two gallons per flush. So, yeah. you know, there there are, there are things that can be done, but it's yeah, we'll, we'll have to see how this all shakes out. Uh, you know. Well, on the uh, other side, the other conundrum is being so we're going to reduce water dramatically. Water agencies make their money selling water so there's going to be price increases so it's kind of a double double whammy they're doing a good thing by saving water but then they're instituting another way that it's going to cost more money to purchase the water now i, I agree that we're not we're not paying the, the true value of water i think we all know that uh compared to other other countries and everywhere else but but that's what's going to happen i don't, I don't think i've ever heard of utilities who went to uh uh, going through the Public Utilities Commission and compl- you know presented a plan to raise rates that it ever got rescinded. Yeah, or, you know I, I think I told you the story once. They hired L.A. County hired a uh, what they call an ombudsman to head up a, a group. This was years ago, probably 10, 10 years ago, to head up this department to be the voice of the customer, the voice of the people. And every every proposal that was put out on the table to raise the rates both for electric and water always got passed always so yeah that's, that's, that's the other side of the coin that people are going to have to get used to so it's they're helping out themselves and the, and the world by protecting the water but you got to pay for that yeah but i but there are um agencies that have uh set up rate structures that uh that don't really um you know that that take advantage of you know so if you're a if you're a low water user then you you won't pay you know you'll have you'll get a lower rate and those right. that use the most will have the larger bills so you know there there are ways to to have a somewhat more equitable rate structure but i do imagine even so if you're selling less water that could be, you know, that could create a financial problem, no doubt. So, yeah. you know, yeah, that was we'll see. Conversation. So I, I, I just feel, yeah, there's good, there's good to do. I'm glad we're working on that. And I, and I think it's also good for companies like ours and, and our competitors to help create new technology that can do these things and, and make it, make it worthwhile for people. Because I remember when, I mean, we all remember when smart controllers came out and they were a really neat thing, but they were really expensive. Like six hundred dollars and up, 
when they first came out. That was, yeah. that was a lot of money at yeah. that time. And I also think, you know, there's an education component here. As a lot of people switch their water, their yards over to, say, drought-tolerant landscaping, but they still water them in the same way that they're <laughs> used to, you know, the same amount right. of water. And oftentimes those landscapes fail because they're overwatered. Because yep. people, you know, gotta they have to change their habits, and and that's really that's really hard. And oh, I can I can imagine too, you know, it's not the homeowner's first choice of where to spend their time, you know, in a room talking about smart controllers and you know low water <laughs> landscape. But you know, but people gotta change, you know. So. Oh, absolutely. You know, I haven't I, I haven't asked this of Chris Davy, but you know, he just did a or in the middle of doing a transformation of his property at his home and he's been sending me pictures and it looks gorgeous. I mean he did a great job. I mean he did talk about sweat equity. He man, this guy shoveled stuff all day long <laughs> over the weekends and stuff. And, you know, people should see what he does and how how it does and like you said, but there's education that's gotta go with it. It's it's easy to convert well, I shouldn't say easy. That's the easy part is converting it over. The hard part the hard part is maintaining it. Yeah. And making sure that it does it. Just like any landscape or any irrigation system, you, you can't just set it and forget it and never go back to it. You you have to see how the systems it's just like your car. You know, yes you can put gas and oil in it, but guess what? Other things break in that car. <laughs> so you, you gotta do it. So maybe we can do a show at Chris's house. And showing him what what he did. He has pictures before and after too. That would be really cool. I do. I've been tracking it all along, Rob. And by the way, for the listeners, I want to make sure that I, uh, you know, facilitate the fact that actually what I was shoveling, so that there's no there's no misunderstanding. I was shoveling <laughs> dirt, mulch, and rocks. <laughs> yeah. Just just in case somebody has any other ideas. I did. I didn't <laughs> say the. I didn't say the S word. So. <laughs> Yeah, and the other the other thing to think about uh, here in, in, in doing this um, is I did take pictures all along, right, so that I can uh, so that I can substantiate what what I did. And you and I have talked about it, Rob, and we you know we yeah. will put something together uh, for that because I think it'll be interesting. But I also am doing it because I want to uh, take advantage of the rebate that the Metropolitan Water District is offering for uh, conversion of turf to native landscape. Yeah, and that's still a big uh, a big deal with them. It is a big deal, and it's still uh, it's still ongoing. But um, hey, I got a question for Chris and for you, Rob. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you both, and Chris, you can answer and tell me whether you agree or not. I I have noticed a change in um, wording in the verbiage from articles and uh, not just from Maven, but from the IA and and other places, other water podcasts and things like that. A shift from um, uh, talking about California water uh, specifically, from talking about you know issues that are labeled conservation, save water, and all that kind of stuff, to California water resiliency. So I I'm not quite sure that I mean I like it. It's a nice word. It's all good, but I'm not quite sure I quite understand what resiliency means. Chris, you got any comments? Yeah, I think that's that's one of those sort of mushy terms, I guess that we're yeah. that people have yet to really solidly define. But in general, the, the idea is that 
you you have an ability to bounce back when something happens that you can respond in some ways like if you have you if your only water source is a river that runs through town and the river runs dry then you got a problem you you're not very resilient you you can't bounce back but if you have a portfolio, which is another word that, uh, that's come out in probably the last five years in California water parlance, if you have a water portfolio and you have some storage and you have groundwater and, you know, maybe you, I don't know, you can do trades with people, you have relationships, you know, then you have ability to do something. So when something goes wrong or, you know, drought comes, you have other sources that makes you more resilient. And that is, I think, kind of what they're talking about. And not only in water, but, you know, they also talk about this in terms of climate change, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. Things like heat, uh, extreme heat waves, uh, you know, other other aspects of climate that can impact the community. Yeah, drier summers, wet winter, winters, a, a more, a wider range of low to high annual temperatures. You know, all those things are being talked about, uh, graphed, charted, right? Uh, Any way you go, you can find tons and tons of, of, of data on that. I mean, I just, you know, I was just interested, I was just perplexed, I think, by, by what I'm seeing in articles that have started to use that resiliency term. It seems to be kind of the word of the day kind of thing, if you know what I mean. You know, it's our latest buzzword. Yeah, it's kind of an all-hands-on-deck. This is what you got. You got dam water. You got regular water. You have potable, other non-potable water. You got desaled water. Uh, you know, you got groundwater. It's, it's all these things that you got to have, as, as I said, the word portfolio. You got to have a balance of these things, just like stock or anything else, so you, so you don't go bad. Well, anyway, we're up against our commercial break. Hey, Rob, uh, Rob, one more yes. question. I got, I got to ask Chris this, right? I got to ask Chris, what does, what does, what's the link between water and cottage cheese, Chris? <laughs> well, I got to ask you. I just got to. I cannot let this, this segment end without asking that question. The, and I think yeah. they, they found out that cottage cheese could remove uh, chromium-6 from, uh, from groundwater. Uh, so uh, back, and I think they, the article says 2005, uh, the east, in the East Bay, uh, is it Alameda or uh, Emeryville? Emeryville. They actually injected uh, cottage cheese into the ground to, to remove this chemical and clean up this toxic mess. I never heard how they got rid of the cottage cheese <laughs> <laughs> underground, uh, but well, sure they did that. Well, that's a big uh, boost to the agriculture world with farming. And so now there's a reason to keep cows in California instead of getting rid of them. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, for our listeners, uh, please go to mavensnotebook.com. Uh, it's a great place to get the best of water news every single day. Uh, you can become a, a subscriber. You can also become a sponsor. And it's an excellent uh excellent doc, bunch of documents in it and it's great calendars and all kinds of things she has in there and uh, i recommend everybody getting it it's uh chris and i chris Davey and i use it every day so chris thank you very much for your insight and uh we'll, we'll talk to you next week and i hope you have a very nice week you too good night everybody have a great week chris good night.
All right, we're going to take a little break, and then we'll be back with our featured guest. So stick around. It's an interesting conversation about uh, the risk of floods that are happening, or could happen. So we'll be back in just a few moments, so uh, stick around. KCAA Loma Linda. Legacy KCAA 1050 AM and Express 106.5 FM. Moving up in this industry means getting the most out of each day so you can focus on growing your business. With Site One, you're in control and we're here to help. It starts with the right team. Our irrigation pros can help map out a complete streamlined system that meet any requirements or regulations. And from the first dig to years after install, knowledgeable experts are available in branch or resources are available online to help find solutions specific to your needs. Next, we make sure you have the right tools to get the job done with the largest selection of top brands in the industry, bringing the latest in Wi-Fi enabled controllers, rotors, sprays, valves, and drip components. And because hard work should always be rewarded, you'll receive personalized pricing and earn loyalty points on qualifying purchases to help you grow. You're in control. Site One is here to help. Water is one of the biggest expenses for communities, HOAs, universities, golf courses, and resorts. So keeping those costs under control, especially when rates are increasing while water supplies are being reduced, are often essential to a customer's survival. Managing water requires multiple skills, which is why it's been complicated and difficult until now. AquaTrack brings multiple skills and technologies together to help large system users conserve outdoor water and improve the health of their landscapes. AquaTrack's professionals are certified landscape water managers and certified landscape irrigation auditors. The company offers audit services, upgrade advice, technical expertise, and water use monitoring. We already manage irrigation water for the largest homeowner associations in Arizona, and we're prepared to bring our knowledge and experience to help others, including landscapers and designers. Give us a call and hear how AquaTrack saved one HOA some 430 million gallons of water and $200,000 in annual water expenses. AquaTrack is Arizona-based, and you can reach us at 623-594-8689. That's 623-594-8689. If you knew there was a pipe cement that works better than the one you're currently using, is better for you and the environment, and costs the same or less, would you buy it? Well, no-brainer, right? Weldon, the trusted leader in solvent cements for over 60 years, is pleased to introduce a new line of solvent cements that does all that. Introducing the Eco-Series line of solvent cements for PVC piping systems. Not only does it work great and set fast, it also has 30% lower solvent emissions and less smelly fumes, a better workplace environment when you're installing pipes. But don't just take our word for it. EcoSeries products are the only solvent cements that are Green Seal certified for environmental innovation for effective performance, improved working conditions, and for use with potable water. Now available in a medium-bodied, fat-setting blue formula, 905 Eco, and a regular-bodied, fat-setting clear formula, 900 Eco. Pick up a can today from your local distributor and see, smell, and feel the difference, just like Joe Sweat, president of Sunrise Irrigation, did. He said, after using Weldon's 905 Eco, we immediately noticed the application was smooth and there was noticeably less odor than other blue solvent cements on the market. The guys love it. 
To learn more about eco-solvent cements from Weldon, visit the website at www.weldon.com or call the technical service hotline at 877-477-8327. That's 877-477-8327. This is KCAA. All right, so welcome back to the second half of the Water Zone Show. And we're going to get a little techie and get some real scientists on the show, Chris. I think this is going to be interesting. And it's, it's the uh, way that they calculate what about floods that are going to happen in California or anywhere. And we're going to go all the way to the University of California in Irvine, California, and get some of their smart professors on the, uh, on the air and have a discussion about that and with one of the heads of uh, the education uh, unit down there. So let's, uh, let's take a stroll and take a listen. I'm Brian Bell. The southwest United States has been enduring a mega drought that began more than 20 years ago, so Californians can be excused for not dwelling too much on the threat of flooding. But the risk is all too real, according to researchers at UC Irvine. And this season's string of heavy rain and snowfall events seems to be proving their point. Brett Sanders, a professor in UCI's Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering, uses advanced remote sensing technologies and simulations to help evaluate the impact of growing flood risk on communities in Southern California. Professor Sanders talks about his research and ways to help prevent the most harmful effects of too much water, especially on historically underserved communities. So today we're obviously going to talk about flood risk, uh, particularly in in California, Southern California. Uh, You've been doing a lot of research lately into this topic. And tell me, I've seen some of your research prior to this, looking at coastal flooding, but a lot of your later work seems to be focused on more what what you would call urban flooding. Is that right? Right. The urban flooding is is really the intersection of flood water in the in the built environment, you know, uh, like cities not unlike what we live in around Southern California. Uh, a lot of people uh, or some people will consider urban flooding um, across California to also be a coastal flooding um, issue because our cities are, are along the coasts of the United States. So there's a, there's a previous work we did that was focused on specifically on sea level rise and flooding risk right along the coast where we had coastal communities like Newport Beach and and Tijuana and uh, you know T- Tijuana River Valley where we had done some some research on how you know coastal communities could could sort of better plan and prepare for future flooding with the aid of simulation tools and but really we we sort of over time broadened our the footprint of our work to go inland um, even into like inland areas like riverside and um, one of the one of the things that came across in the study that came out in nature sustainability last fall was that a lot of this type of flooding, this this sort of inland flooding, impacts communities 
that you that are not the same type of communities that you see in Newport Beach or on the in some of these really close to the coast communities. Maybe explain a little bit about how what you discovered about these communities inland that are being impacted now. Yeah, that's a great question, Brian. We've our work looks specifically at the differences in the flood exposure in Los Angeles County to coastal flood risk, which we defined as flooding from you know, a high tide uh, with a storm surge along the California coast compared to flooding along rivers, which um, rivers of Los Angeles County, which are like the San Gabriel River, Los Angeles River, Compton Creek, Dominguez Channel, those main stem drainage systems, which cut through the, the urban core of Los Angeles. And um, we also compared that to what we call pluvial flooding, which is flooding caused by you know, rainfall that hits the street and runs down through neighborhoods and collects collects in lowland areas and, and creates challenges there as well. And um, what perhaps is, is no surprise to many in California is that the coastal flood risk is a, is a risk that um, impacts the more affluent communities and disproportionately white communities along the coast. And we found that our our river flood risk um, was disproportionately impacting communities with a large black population and also communities that had um, you know, you know, large Hispanic population fractions. So it helped us appreciate that, you know, depending on how you think about flooding, are you thinking about flooding as an inland risk associated with channel flood channels that might be undersized for a changing climate? Are you thinking about coastal communities that might be exposed to rising seas? When we think about those two different risks, we realize that the impacted populations are quite different. You know, a more affluent white community along the coast and uh, um, in inland areas, the impacted communities tend to be, you know, black and Hispanic populations and populations that are, that are um, less affluent. Now, when we looked at the, the pluvial flood risk, which is the flood risk from rainfall, that tended to be something that, that um, impacted uh, populations somewhat evenly. So we didn't see uh, strong inequalities relative to, to, um, to sort of people's exposure to you know, rainfall flood risks. And I, I think that at some level that makes sense in the sense, you know, because uh, you know, we, we all we, we all get hit by rain. You know, the rain the rain falls on everyone, and um, and streets and aren't aren't that different from community to community. But there are differences in whether communities sit near rivers, whether those communities are in lower topography, or whether those communities are along the coast. And that kind of uh, leads to the sort of I guess what you might call inequities in flood risk that we uncovered in our study. One of the things that was mentioned in that nature sustainability study last fall was a risk that came from what you called atmospheric rivers. And I've read in the news over the last few months that that has been something that we have experienced here in Southern California, large rainfall events brought on by atmospheric rivers. Was it a surprise to you to see these atmospheric rivers hit California so hard in these last couple of months? You know, it wasn't a surprise. Uh, we, we know that California's you know, flood risk is linked to these strong atmospheric rivers that bring 
bands of moisture into the state for you know a, a day at a time and and in fact there were there were sort of a, a sequence of atmospheric rivers that impacted us in January um, and in fact we know that the worst floods in the history of, of California have occurred with the sort of um, sequencing of multiple atmospheric rivers so um, the largest floods in the past have occurred when you you see one after another of these wet storms roll in back to back and so just about every day there's rainfall for weeks literally weeks on end and when that happens the the, the land surface is becomes saturated with water and there's just no additional storage available for rainwater to collect and so you reach a point where rainwater strikes the land surface uh, it runs straight off tries to find a, a you know its pathway downhill towards the ocean. And that leads to the really the greatest, the greatest flood risks the state can face. And we saw evidence of that this past, past January. We saw places like Central Coast um, from Ventura, Santa Barbara got hit storm after storm. They got saturated, soaking wet, and then they got hit with another storm. And then even more rainfall came down. Areas like, you know, Salinas got, had levees break and after the levees break, you know, highways were flooded, communities were cut off, lost their 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 connection to um, critical infrastructure like hospitals. And so there was a you know crisis in Northern California with with communities like um, in the in a Monterey County that couldn't 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 evacuate because there's no pathway to evacuate. Mm. Uh, up in the Central Valley, we saw rivers that that just you know, crested above levees and caused levees to break and uh, large swaths of land um, in the Central Valley flooded. Highway 99 was cut off. This atmospheric river um, um, dynamic that that is now sort of entered into the lexicon of our conversation about the weather is something that's happened for a long period of time, but only more recently have atmospheric scientists come to appreciate the way that these atmospheric rivers bring moisture out of the Pacific Ocean in these in the form of these these large bands of water water vapor, you know, transporting across the atmosphere, and and to try to you know build appreciation for the power of these of these wet storms, you know, they they came up with a name and gave it a rating index and tried to build awareness of the threat because the threat of these atmospheric rivers is is comparable to the threat brought on by large tropical storms that impact our Gulf Coast and our East Coast. Now they don't, what happens is we just don't see them coming back to back to back that frequently. We've been mired in, in year after year of drought. And in the drought years, we just see one storm at a time, um, typically. And so we don't see those big floods and we don't see the reservoirs fill up across the state and we've had a smaller snowpack. Uh, but this past year, we saw evidence of what a more normal winter looks like in California um, based on the historical record. When you see a storm after storm after storm roll in, bring a lot of moisture, um, build the snowpack, saturate the land surface. And we saw that the floods that come with that, those, those storms that come back to back. So in fact, when we were planning the LA flood risk study, we had in mind the reality that there could be a future storm similar to one that occurred, you know, in 1862, which bankrupt the state and caused, you know, you know, basically widespread, widespread damage that bankrupt the state and forced the government to move out of Sacramento into San Francisco. 
Uh, another Los Angeles had been hit by big floods in the 1920s and and the 1930s, and and um, this is the city's had a history of big floods, but over time they built up infrastructure that contained a lot of those floods, and over time we've had more and more droughts, which led a lot of people to even remember that we faced a flood risk. So that was a motivation in our preparation of that study. That's reason why we did this study because we knew there's a, a risk in Los Angeles. We knew that awareness was low and but we weren't sure exactly the scale of this of the exposure, how many people would be exposed to a flood. And we didn't know, you know, to what extent the flood might or might not be an equitable impact. And so that was kind of the rationale behind that study. Also, um, another rationale behind that study was that, you know, we've seen across the United States that more vulnerable communities are unable to recover from floods. And that sends communities sort of spiraling downwards, less investment, people leaving the area. And we wanted to know, is that part of California's future? Do we have vulnerable communities focused, you know, where, where they'll be hit by, by a, a flood and, and they'll also suffer, you know, long-term challenges in the recovery. So trying to build awareness about our, our risks as a state communities that are especially vulnerable was part of our motivation. Do you, do you think that uh, heavy rainfall this year, the 2022 or 2023 uh, rainy season in California and some of the results of that are causing people, you know, policymakers, uh, civil engineers to think about new civil in, uh, infrastructure approaches to dealing with these issues? Absolutely. We've seen two, I think, major, I think, messages come from this event in our understanding of it. One one message is that we are vulnerable. We're seeing levees break. We're seeing roads cut off. This was not the equivalent to the great floods we've had in the past. I don't, I don't know the exact return period, but we're going to be facing floods larger than when we faced this past year. So the first message was that we have vulnerabilities. We have infrastructure that's aging and needs attention. The second message is that we we don't have a good flood control infrastructure for the purpose of water long-term water conservation and water security. And we saw you know calls left and right for more capacity to capture water, retain it, store it, and use it to address you know the, the challenges we had with the drought. That, sounds, so, that always sounds to me as though it's something easier said than done. You know, you always see people on social media saying, why can't we <laughs> capture all this water when it's all just running out to the ocean? What can we, you know? Yeah, and part of the, the reason it's, it's so hard to do is because we didn't design our infrastructure to do that. Mm-hmm. So most of our coastal water infrastructure, our flood channels were designed for two things and two things only. One was to protect people, you know, for the safety of people that they don't get hurt during a flood. And the second was for economic, you know, development and growth. So we developed our flood channel infrastructure to, to sweep water to the ocean as quickly as possible to, to keep people safe and to protect, you know, economic development, you know, buildings and housing and industries, because the, the state had faced a number of devastating floods. And they knew if they got hit by if the flood, you know, spread out and and flowed through developed areas, it was extremely costly and extremely deadly. 
today we are living with infrastructure that was designed for, for sweeping water quickly to the ocean. So the challenge is, if we as a nation are reinvesting in our infrastructure, can we reinvest in a way that we achieve a different set of functions from our rivers? Can we redesign the river to slow down the water, to spread it out, to, to recharge groundwater basins, to process nutrients? Um, can we redesign our rivers so that they're more integrated with our ecosystems? Can we design our rivers so that they create, you know, green spaces with trees that offer shade during heat waves? Um, these are the things we should be asking as we have an enormous opportunity with the infrastructure funding that's being provided by the federal government, enormous opportunity to rebuild, reinvest our infrastructure. We can't follow the same objectives that we used a hundred years ago. We need a, a new set of objectives. And I think that's, that's really the huge opportunity we face today to simultaneously address flood risk and, and, and also meet these water sustainability challenges. And that, that is not easy. You're absolutely right. There's going to be some tough choices. To do that, we'll need more space and land is expensive and not easily acquired. But that, that is an opportunity we face today. What are you working on now in the next like 12 months uh, research-wise that, that uh, in, anything interesting that you'd like to share? Yeah, so, so two things. Like one is that we now know that there are the really much greater flood exposure in Los Angeles County than, than anyone realized based on existing flood maps. We don't know what the actual exposure is for other parts of California. So one of the things we're working on is, is to expand our modeling tool uh, beyond Los Angeles County. We've got parts of Orange County covered, but we're partner, partnering with San Diego County, with Riverside County, with San Bernardino County, with Ventura County. And so one of the things we're gonna do is, is expand our model to cover all of Southern California and look at the exposure facing roughly half of the state's population and um, roughly half of the state GDP that falls within that area and, and get a sense of what is the real risk we're facing today. And that's, a, that's extremely important for, for risk awareness. Just raising awareness of what's at risk can be, can be very influential in helping communities, cities to update uh, building codes, land use, um, zoning, that sort of thing. And that can go a long way towards, towards, um, towards managing flood risk. The other thing we're working on is to chart future risks, considering two things. One is a warmer climate uh, with more intense rainfall, uh, more frequent wildfires, higher sea levels along the coast, perhaps changes in wave energy. So we need to think systematically about the way that the hazards are changing from even starting in the mountains with mountain runoff and mud and debris flows, inland areas, more intense rainfall and runoff in coastal areas with higher sea levels and perhaps changes in the wave climate. And then we also wanna look into the future and ask how, how could we adapt our infrastructure, perhaps widening channels, raising levees, putting in dams, putting in water capture infrastructure, 
And we can then use our, our modeling tools to test out which of those would be most effective, which of those would be most equitable, who would benefit from those adaptation measures, how do we pay for them? And we can really lay out a set of options for the state of California to think about how it simultaneously manages flood risk you know, and works towards its water sustainability um, needs and, and, and does so in an equitable way. Well, I want to thank you for joining me today to discuss flood risk and water sustainability here in the state of California. And uh, uh, thanks again. It's a pleasure, Brian. Thanks for having me. Well, that was pretty interesting, Chris. Going to have a lot of people guessing on uh, what's going to happen with floods. Yep, it is great. I thought it was an awesome piece. Um, ought to talk to those guys again sometime in the future. So listen, Rob, you've got an evening coming up. Uh, that's what they tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to brag about it. Yeah, but, uh, you don't. But it's but, go ahead. No, I'm just going to, I'm saying congratulations, man. Let's just, you know, give us a 10-second blurb on what you're going to be doing the rest of the night. Well, I've got to go give a speech with our general manager talking about uh, our recipient award of Business of the Year from Riverside. So we're very excited about that. We've got our whole senior management team going to be there, and it's going to be at the Riverside Convention Center here. And it should be a couple hundred people, so we're pretty excited about that. And you should be well worth it, at, uh, uh, well, worth it as well. And, uh, you know, just to let our listeners know, because uh, we didn't get a chance to get Chris Austin off right, but, um, boy... Uh, Chris is going to be at the uh, ASIC conference coming up in a couple of weeks. He's going to be a speaker, right? Absolutely. And we're going to be there as well. Yep, we are. You and I both. So looking forward to that. Um, no moss growing on our shoes, Robert. <laughs> that's, for, that's for sure. But uh, we'll, get, we'll get to interview a lot of good uh, people. Actually, some of the best irrigation uh, consultants in, in the country are going to be at this thing. So uh, we'll be very uh, blessed to have that. So. We'll bring all that information all right. back. Well, we got to get going here. So, Chris, the most important thing we have to tell our wonderful listeners is please help keep your planet blue. Planet blue. And remember, if you like green, you can't have it unless you have blue. So, everybody, we'll talk to you next week. Have a great, safe week. KCA.